Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin, recording from my home studio in Westchester County, New York. I can hardly contain my excitement for today's guest. Joining me today is Gary Hirschberg, co-founder, chairman, and former president and CEO of Stonyfield Farm. Founded in 1983, Stonyfield was built by organic food movement mavericks like Gary and has paved the way for others through planet-friendly business practices by offsetting emissions, producing plant-based yogurt cups, and making their own renewable energy, among other things. In 2016, Stonyfield furthered its commitment to sustainability by becoming a certified B Corp and has continued to pursue its dedication to healthier lives and planets through several environmental and purpose-driven initiatives. Gary serves on numerous boards and wrote a book called Stirring It Up, How to Make Money and Save the World. His lifelong passion for organic foods has spurred many of his endeavors from research and education around organic farming, aquaculture, and renewable energy to Stonyfield's Adopt-A-Cow program, later renamed Have-A-Cow, which promoted the value of small family farms. I'm so excited to learn more about his work building Stonyfield and how he's continued to uphold his company's values during this unusual time amid COVID-19. Gary, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thank you, Aaron. Nice to be with you. Nice to be with you too. And it's great that we can see each other remotely on this Squadcast. So I'm going to start in the way, 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 way back. You were educated at a school called the Dairyfield School in Manchester, New Hampshire. And if I'm correct, that school emphasized the importance of students becoming civic-minded individuals with a commitment to community service. Do you think that this school and that mission really helped you become a citizen of the world and helped shape a little bit of what you've done over the course of your career and it obviously inspired others as well? Wow, this is the Wayback Machine. <laughs> so just so your audience knows, we're talking about the late 60s and 70s here. And yes, I think that's an astute observation. Frankly, it wasn't just Dairyfield's civic-minded philosophy. It was the fact that the school was actually being created while I was there. Literally, the founding, the first meeting of a group of parents to create the school was in my living room when I was in fourth or fifth grade. And so being a part of a place that was being invented, and that, of course, happened later when I went to Hampshire College, which was also a I was in the third class there. I think it gave me a real sense of possibility. It gave me a sense of that as students, we had a voice and we had a responsibility. But Aaron, I think the real catalyst for me was just the times. I was, this was obviously Vietnam, the birth of the environmental movement. When I was growing up, we used to eat lamb and eggs and milk and butter and cheese from farms that were either a walk or a bike ride from my house. And all through my childhood, they disappeared as Southern New Hampshire became more suburbanized. The Merrimack River that famously on which New Hampshire's textile history was built was the 10th most polluted river in America. It literally caught on fire one time. We weren't allowed to go near it. So my ecology classes, that was a new word in 1968 at Dairyfield, we would sample water and look at nitrates. And so I was getting, it was the whole question authority thing. And maybe one other really important impetus, I was a ski racer growing up and I used to visit every spring. There was this incredible race on Mount Washington in famous Inferno. And I spent a lot of time on Mount Washington as a child. In fact, I literally did my thesis in college up there. And when I was born, 
And until I was in college, one could see the Atlantic Ocean from the summit of Mount Washington on a clear day. It was 60, 70 miles away. But by the time I was 17, that view had been permanently obscured and never has been seen again because of the being downwind from Midwestern coal and industrialization. And so all of this combined with this new institution, kind of inventing the sense of purpose, the notion of students as responsible citizens, all, I think, combined to give me a sense that we really did need to question authority and we needed to invent new solutions. There's also this entrepreneurialism thread as well, right? Because you were part of two newly founded educational institutions. So you probably, whether it was subconscious or not, it was ingrained in you that anything is possible. You can build anything if you have the passion and the vision to do so. Yeah. And there was financial insecurity in the air as well. So the thing about entrepreneurship, and as you may know, I run these entrepreneurship institutes in New Zealand and here in the US. I've done it for 20 years. The thing about entrepreneurship is, is it's not about how you're doing when things are going well. It's about how quickly you get back on your feet after you've inevitably been knocked down. Because business people often say, oh, I've got so many problems. That's what business is. Business is all about solving problems. And so, yeah, I was watching these little schools struggle to stay alive. I mean, there were questions about, I mean, the faculty were actually fairly open. It was the 60s about whether they were going to be paid next quarter. And so it's a kind of a sift. Some people, that insecurity is, they're out of there. Go be a lawyer or a doctor or something or work for a large company. But for me, it was just pure excitement. And I should just go back a tiny bit further and just tell you my father and grandfather were shoe manufacturers here in New Hampshire. And so also during this period, that industry totally disappeared. Hundreds and hundreds of factories, thousands and thousands of workers, dozens and dozens of communities completely collapsed. My family's own business went to near bankruptcy and my family lost everything. My parents were divorced. I watched alcohol. I watched drugs. I watched dislocation. And these formerly robust little towns here in New Hampshire that were once dynamic. Now, to be fair, there was a whole polluting backstory here that I was becoming aware of as a young ecologist. But, you know, to watch these, the pharmacist, the veterinarian, the law firm, the newsstand all shudder was really a wake up call. And yeah, it motivated me to recognize, I mean, to be honest, it made me feel like business was the source of all things bad. But it did make me think about social change and how through more kind of nonprofit stuff, I might be able to help address some of these societal and environmental problems. So did you expect that you would actually start a business from the moment that you joined the board of the Rural Education Center? I'm just, it's 1983, right? I'm laughing. It's not a joke. Well, I joined the board in 1980, Samuel. I do need to say this right away. This company was founded by Samuel and Louise Kamen. I, yes, I was the co-founder of the actual brand and business that built, but Samuel was running this little organic farming school, as you say, the, the Rural Education Center. I was running an ecological research institute on Cape Cod. I had gone there actually to learn how to build windmills. This is where the aquaculture and the solar and the organics, this was all about trying to demonstrate that there were real solutions to climate change. There were real solutions to toxic food production. There were real solutions to pollution and agriculture and to our own nutritional 
sort of bankruptcy as a country by using integrated ecological methods. The problem was that all of our work was funded by charity. And particularly, we had a solid base of federal support through the Department of Energy and USDA because we were inventing these new solutions, which today are commonplace, but back then nobody knew what the hell we were talking about. And Ronald Reagan came into power in 1981. And the first thing they did, the Reagan administration did, was slash funding of all of this, of renewable energy. It was the first wave of lobbyist-powered government. And of course, big energy, big ag were in and all these alternatives were out. And so suddenly our little nonprofits, mine down on the Cape and Samuel's in New Hampshire, were really struggling. Samuel asked me to join his board to help him because I was pretty good at fundraising and I was pretty good at coming up with new innovative solutions to how we could make money through consulting and publishing and not depending so much on grant support. And of course, he had this little, he had one cow and he made this amazing yogurt. We would sit at his board meetings and he eat this incredibly delicious, creamy, golden from his one Jersey cow, whole milk yogurt with fresh blueberries and maple syrup also from the farm. And one day we just said, well, we're just desperate for money. Said, so why don't we try to sell this stuff? So the reason I laughed so quickly when you asked the question is I thought business, like I said earlier, was the source of all things bad. And I ran away from business. I saw what it did to my family. I saw what it did to our communities. The pollution. Yeah, the pollution. I thought the last thing I wanted to do was be in business. But at this point, necessity being the mother of invention, we had to come up with a means of cash to keep the little school alive. Of course, in the long run, as you know, the tail ended up wagging the dog. The yogurt became a far more effective educational institution than the little school ever was. We ultimately shuttered the school in favor of it and have 35 years later educated many, many millions more in more effective way by demonstrating the profitability of environmental commitment, the profitability of sustainability, regenerative, organic, the profitability of supporting family farmers. We've demonstrated family farmers can make more money when they are organic. So the DNA was there. I mean, your questions are perceptive. I was picking up a lot. I knew about getting back on my feet. My little schools were always teetering or tottering. And of course, my family had been knocked flat. So the combination of sort of a drive to make a difference, but also the knowledge that, yeah, you can always get back up on your feet, really. And Samuel's genius and Louise's genius in their absolutely magnificent product formulation. Those are what combined to make Stonyfield possible. Did that cow have a name? Do you remember? Lilybell. But you decided not to call the company Lilibel. You called it Stonyfield. Why Stonyfield? So this was a 1792 hilltop farm. We often joke that we had 11 months of winter, one month of poor sledding. <laughs> it was the last place on earth you wanted to build a company. We talked off air. My wife grew up in northern Vermont, and she said she would have to wear her winter coat over her Halloween costume every year, <laughs> trick-or-treating. Oh, right? for goodness <laughs> sakes, of course. Yeah, I always hated that. I was with her growing up here in New Hampshire. I mean, I've got the stories. But the problem with this place is, first of all, we were up a nine-tenths of a mile dirt road that was muddy when it wasn't icy, very steep, had a 90-degree hairpin turn at the very top. If the power went out, you were dead. If you had a fire, you sent a postcard to the fire department. I mean, to get the plow to come up our road 
we had to put a bottle of Jack Daniels in the mailbox. Otherwise, no plow. <laughs> and of course, getting employees up and down the hill and then getting yogurt off. And it was, I mean, the milk truck getting bogged down in the mud. There was everything wrong with this place. But that place was Stonyfield Farm. It's amazing. We're going to take a very quick break and we'll be right back. Now, you talk about all the different kind of political as well as local manufacturing issues and how at the time you were called an ecologist and you're looking at aquaculture and you're talking about windmills. And today it's far more part of our vernacular, but do you feel vindicated or still frustrated by the fact that adoption is still potentially slower than you'd want it to be? Or are you still hopeful in that at least we're talking about it and there are more companies and there's more innovation than ever before in looking at alternative energy sources? If I can pick D, all of the above, I mean, I do feel somewhat vindicated that ecology and sustainability have now become survival, profits, brand building, superiority. I do feel incredibly frustrated by the slow, we humans are a little bit slow on the draw. We've been warming the planet for a very long time. We've been toxifying one in two Americans are going to be diagnosed with cancer in our lifetimes, according to the president's cancer panel. We have autism, which was one in four or 500 kids when I was growing up is now one in, well, and actually in Westchester County, where you are, it's one in 48 boys now. And oncologists now, the leading oncologic boards absolutely say that genetics is about 5% of the cause of cancers and a lot of these diseases, that it's all environmental. And so the fact that we keep doing this to ourselves and not getting the memo. And Aaron, let me just say that the deepest frustration is the lack of wisdom as a species that we've developed. We look to ancient civilizations and look at their myths and say, wow, how could they believe in some guy up in the clouds throwing lightning bolts down? But we have our own myths. We have the myth of that the earth is our subsidiary that it's there for the taking and the dumping, when in fact, everything that's ever been possible in human evolution has been made possible by a bountiful earth. We are the subsidiary of the earth. We have the myth that the earth is infinitely resilient to handle whatever we can dump on it. Clearly, the feedback systems are there. COVID is an environmental crisis and its origins, and the earth has been screaming, and finally, we're being forced to listen because it's touching our health. And the biggest myth, which is that our human activities result in these externalities, these direct consequences, the polluting of our rivers, the depletion of natural resources, the toxification of our airways and waterways, the demise of species and biodiversity. But we don't measure any of those externalities in our economics. They don't exist. If they're not on our income statement or our balance sheet, then they literally don't exist. And of course, now you're starting to see the largest companies on earth recognizing that if for no other reason than to reduce their liabilities, they need to focus on sustainability, cutting these externalities and starting to measure them. But we are a long way from a deep philosophic turnaround. And every day we live the myth of a way, that mythological place where we send our waste. That's what climate change is all about. We send our carbon up to this place that if you ever find it, let me know. But I'm pretty confident it doesn't exist. There is no such thing as a way. So that's the deeper frustration. Now, to be a little more positive, obviously, I'm deeply proud to your last point in your question. I mean, the organic industry, which when I Samuel and I started, there was no 
organic and industry in the same sentence. It was a rounding error. I think the first year of Stonyfield, nationally, there was about a million and a half dollars of organic anything in commerce. Today, it's $60 billion. It's the fastest growing segment of all sectors. As you know, I'm on many boards. I consult for many companies from beer to wine to energy to dairy and meat and obviously all the plant-based textiles. I chair a group called Organic Voices, which is a couple hundred of the largest organic players out there. And you can't find a category that organic isn't growing faster than conventional. So this is all very vindicating. It's very, very, very vindicating to see a younger generation coming along who did get the memo, who saw, who don't have to be lectured about climate change or toxins. They've seen what's happened and they know we have to go different. You mentioned it's a $60 billion industry. Do you think that one day the actual cost of organic goods will be more in line with making it more accessible to people who have financial insecurity? Yeah, that's a, such a good choice of words on your part, more in line, because often when these questions are being asked, the person will say the same cost or cheaper or whatever. And more in line is exactly right. And yes, I do. I mean, let's start with this truth. Cheap food is not either. <laughs> Most of it is not food, and it's certainly not cheap. You may not be paying for much at the cash register for all these fillers and chemicals, but there are costs that you're paying. You're paying for it in your health. You're paying for it in environmental costs. You're paying for it by declining farmers, depleted water tables, disappearing aquifers, and so forth. And you may not pay for it that second, but the reason that America has the highest healthcare costs in the world is partly the structure of our system, but it's mainly because it's all about sickness care. It's all about the most expensive way to deal with health. It's after we've been sick and preventative care is the cheapest. But to answer you squarely, yes, with scale, we're bringing that cost down. When I first started, my organic milk costs were roughly 200%, two times the cost of conventional milk. And that's because I had one little farmer, actually not far from where your wife grew up, in Tunbridge, Vermont. So I had this long drive up there and a long drive back. You know it well. And so that meant that I had to amortize the cost of that truck over that the paltry 400 gallons of milk I was getting. That was Route 91, is my guess? Well, it was 89. 89, yeah. yeah. Jog off of 91, yeah. It was one of the two, right. Yeah, right, exactly. exactly. <laughs> but then as that farmer was starting to prove that that courageous farmer, that was, by the way, Peter and Bunny Flint, as they started to get the interest of other farms, and we picked up two, three, four who started to do this organic thing, all of a sudden that cost of that truck was now being spread over 1,000 gallons, 2,000 gallons, 3,000. And now today, of course, there's 2,000 family farmers. So our costs, so while the whole thing about organic is really simple, most people think it's all about chemical avoidance. And of course it is. There's over 700 chemicals that are prohibited under organic standards. And non-GMO doesn't do that. And natural doesn't do that. And local doesn't do that. And regenerative doesn't do that. These labels do not have teeth. Organic does. It's a legal definition that you cannot use over 700 chemicals. And you should go to a site called organicvoices.org where we have a wonderful, wonderful communication about that. But organic is more than that. Organic is about sequestering carbon. If you're not going to use chemical fertilizer, synthesize annual fertility, 
that comes from Venezuelan natural gas or Kuwaiti oil, you've got to build soil carbon on the site. And that's the only way we're going to slow or reverse climate change. But it's also fundamentally about animal health. Organic cows live twice as long as conventional cows. It's about human economics. It's about supporting family farmers. Our average herd size among our 2,000 family farmers, average herd size is 65 cows. You cannot make money in conventional farming with 65 cows. So when you ask about reducing the cost, keep in mind that our mission is to keep families on land, keep them farming, because we believe when people are growing and touching the animals and touching the crops and following the weather, that you're going to have a healthier, more ecologic system. So therefore, we pay them. Right now, my family farmers still earn twice what a conventional farm is. In fact, right this second in COVID, they're probably at 250 or 300%. But I don't pay that. I mean, I pay that to them. But because of my efficiency in transportation and processing and other things, I'm able to bring those overall costs more in line. And also, frankly, I don't spend money on advertising. You're not going to see Stonyfield ads on television because we can't afford it. So my cost of goods is much, much higher, even with the transportation efficiencies. But my net margin is very comparable to Dan and Chobani, Yoplait, even though I pay two to three times more for our, our milk because of scale, to your point. And Earthbound Farms has shown that with produce and Forager has and Orgain and countless other brands. Lundberg Rice have shown that with scale, we can keep paying the farmer the proper price but get the costs more in line, not to the cheap food that really isn't cheap, but to something that, to your point, is affordable. And I'll just say one last thing, because you got right to the point about food insecurity, and I just don't want to miss it. Stonyfield was the first, I was the first organic company to ever sell to Walmart. And I took an enormous amount of grief from my left about that, selling out to the big, bad company. But the reason I did it is that we never set out to be food for the elite. And one hell of a lot of Americans can only afford to buy their food at a place like Walmart or Costco or clubs or whatever. Now, mind you, we're dedicated to our co-ops and our CSAs and farmers markets. But my objective is that wherever food is sold, organic should be there. And so what I would say to your listeners is that right now, for example, during COVID, our 32 ounce, our large size yogurts, we can't actually keep in demand. And that's because there's more and more families at home. Suddenly those college kids are not away anymore. And kids are eating three meals a day, not getting the school. Meal. And so courts are the most economical way to do it. And you can make yogurt cheese and you can add your own fruit. And that's what we do in our house. We call ourselves the full fat family. We eat you know, quarts of whole milk. Actually, we use your yogurt to make mac and cheese as well. Yeah, well, absolutely. <laughs> By the way, anytime you use sour cream or mayonnaise, you can use yogurt instead, and it's exactly. much healthier. You get the probiotics and the better taste. My wife wrote a cookbook about all this. But the point is, is that there are economical ways to get organic, and the savvy shop out there is finding it. And now, one of the real silver linings of the COVID crisis, and I've lost four friends in this crisis, okay? And I've had many, many more who are Sorry. currently fighting. So I don't want in any way to gloss over the real pain and the economic dislocation. But there are silver linings here. And among them are that people are finding out just how much they can actually get at their home in economical packages and sizes and shapes. They're finding out, they're choosing health. Right now, I've been running these webinars all of April and I'll run them again in May with 
leading organic producers and distributors and wholesalers. And every one of us is struggling to keep up with demand because moms are finally figuring out and exercising this notion that we are what we eat, that if you want to keep your family safe, the best way to keep building a strong immune system is eat well, get your nutrition, get your vitamins, get your probiotics, eat organic, avoid chemicals. We know that chemical pesticides and herbicides are the number one cause of threat to our immune systems. And so it isn't that every last consumer can find or afford organic. But what I want your listeners to really understand is that every one of us who buys an organic item, even if you can't buy everything, you're making it more affordable for somebody else. When you run that item over a scanner, you're voting, your retailers become more interested, they're going to bring in more. And ultimately, that scale brings the whole cost down so that it's affordable for everybody. And like you referred to earlier, there is this daisy chain effect. So by doing that, not only are you reducing your own body burden, but you're also improving the healthcare system. And it's all connected. Now, one of the things I want to get back to, because you talked about the lack of wisdom earlier, and you talked about how it's better now than when it was. And you talked about how <laughs> you don't... Adver- yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. And advertising isn't everything. You're not going to necessarily win just through advertising. But you do win through shining lights on things where there was once darkness, and you do win through raising your voice. I had Ben and Jerry's on, and obviously they're a brand that has a very strong voice when it comes to particular issues. And I have a confession, and hopefully this won't hurt our relationship. Very, very early on in my career, I'm talking like when I was like 21, 22 years old, I worked for a crisis management firm in Washington, D.C., and that's how I started my career. And my first crisis client was an organization called the Dairy Council. Now, the Dairy Council was heavily funded by Monsanto. And one of the first campaigns I had to work on was a campaign called BST. And for those of you who don't know, of course, you're very familiar with bovine somatotropin, RBGH. And the way I got introduced to Stonyfield was because you guys raised your voice in a good way. And I ended up leaving this firm for lots of reasons because you were one of the first, if not the first, brand to put a label on your product saying RBGH free. And if I recall this correctly, it's been a long time. At the time, we had dairy farmers burning milk. Five, six percent of the milk supply was burning. Yet you had companies like Monsanto creating the synthetic hormone to increase milk production, lactation in cows, which made no freaking sense. And it dawned on me, I get it, they represented dairy farmers, but I was morally conflicted as to why am I doing this and what am I actually doing? And I literally had farmers calling this hotline saying, what are these hormones doing to us, et cetera, et cetera. So there was a guy named Jeremy Rifkin, who was an activist who used to dress up in cow costumes. I used to go and have to hand out media statements and deal and they would dump milk on me. And that was my first introduction to really understanding what's going on in the world. And this is back This is the early 90s. So I just wanted to applaud you for your efforts because to be able to put a label and to stand up, not through advertising, but through activism and advocacy, that takes courage. It takes guts. And it wasn't just to sell more. It was to sell right. Well, the first thing I'm going to say is that I forgive you. (laughs) Thank you. Don't worry. And also, as you may know, bovine somatotrophin, RBGH, basically doesn't exist anymore. There may be 2 to 3% of farmers out there using it. So we won. You should also know that not only did we put it on the label, but that was the result of a prolonged legal battle to get to put it on the label, which we won because we were the first dairy in America to actually pay farmers not to use it. So we weren't just 
talking, we were actually paying. So smart. Ben and Jerry's followed soon after, and we built a coalition that way, some other wonderful companies as well. We should just say quickly for your listeners to understand what was wrong with this stuff. Well, it was, to your point, creating a surge in milk at a time when farmers couldn't sell. All that was doing was decreasing the price of milk. It was putting farmers under. So we didn't like the economics. But we also didn't like, there was no verification being done at the FDA about the health effects. We knew that there were links to insulin growth factor one, which is a known catalyst, a known inflammatory in terms of cancer. We already knew that there were early, there were problems with prepubescent adolescent girls because of excessive exposure to hormones of all sorts. We also knew that these hormones could not be good for the animals. And in fact, there was evidence that the animals, when they were getting these injections, they were actually having decreased bone mass because their growth factor was working. It was growing. And as they were producing more and more milk, they were actually depleting their own calcium. And cows were literally having their legs were breaking while they were standing in tie stalls. So in other words, everything was wrong with this. But mainly it was that, back to that wisdom point, it was that leap of faith of trust us, better living through chemicals. DDT is good for me back in the Dow era. But just to come to the real point you made, I just need to correct one thing you said. It wasn't that we were choosing not to advertise. We literally couldn't afford advertising. We've never been able to afford advertising. My gross margins, for those who understand what that is, the money that is left after I've paid the farmer, paid for the milk, the cup, the fruit, the yogurt, before I sell one single cup of yogurt off the back of my duck, my gross margins are 10 points worse than Danon's or Chobani's or Yo Place because they're paying for cheap milk. And, you know, to be fair, Danon owns some organic, they own Horizon and others now. So they're not doing that with everything they're doing. But like I told you earlier, we pay our farmers the proper price. So what that means is when you get down below the gross margin line where you pay for advertising and salespeople and all that stuff, we never had the money. So on the one hand, I would love to proudly take your compliment and say, oh yeah, we were so smart, but we didn't have any choice. But more to the point, and this is really the heart of it, I think, in the heart of your podcast, we and Ben and & Jerry's and Patagonia and so many other companies now, but back then it was kind of lonely. We were discovering that the holy grail with consumer products is actually loyalty. The cheapest consumer you're going to get is the one you've already got. And the benefit of loyalty is that you get word of mouth, which is the most powerful purchase influence there is. Advertising has actually gone away as a purchase influence. Yeah, I mean, what you're talking about is PR, which of course is near and dear to my heart. But so you mentioned Danone and Chobani, and I'm seeing, and I know that I'm poking the beast here, okay, but they're labeling things now, I think, quite aggressively. I don't really know whether or not they are truly organic, whether or not they really are creating social impact. I feel like in many Who's ways- Who's the they in that sentence? Chobani Chobani's not organic. No, not even, yeah. But it's very misleading to the average consumer. Again, going back to your point about wisdom, they can't tell the difference. They don't know. They think, and I think it's a false equivalent between a Chobani and a Stonyfield on the shelf. And how do we get people to better understand that buying Chobani just because they say something, or because the business roundtable says it's all about stakeholders, not shareholders anymore. How do we cut through that and educate people and get them on side? Well, we have a few hours for this, right? Now, look, <laughs> no. you're absolutely right. First, let me just 
Credit where it's due. Hamdi Yulakaya built an amazing business, okay? Guy's a really smart entrepreneur. I know Hamdi personally. We've had plenty of interactions. I'll leave it at that. Like steel cage matches. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he did a great job. That said, when he launched, he called it nothing but good. Well, when you pay your farmers less than the cost of production, or certainly less than what they need. And here in the Northeast, as you know, dairy farmers have been a sort of an endangered species for a long time. You're not nothing but good. When those farmers are using synthetic growth hormones, but even more herbicides in their fields, glyphosate, when they are being injected with hormones and antibiotics and eating grain and feed that is loaded with drugs, you, and this is not, I'm not speaking about Chobani right now, I'm speaking about conventional dairy, you are not nothing but good. You have some room for improvement. And one of the questions in the organic space is, do we knock the conventional or do we promote the positives? And we certainly believe that ultimately the poor consumer does not want to hear all of this negativity. The world is full of negatives. What the world wants to hear is positives, is what's good. So we talk about animal health. The animals live twice as long. We have bloggers and influencers come to our farms and show that farmers can make money with 65 cows, that you don't have any need for herbicides. And frankly, the way to do it is not having the company talk about it. It's having third-party validators talk about it. Now, in our day, and again, I really want to give credit where it's due, Hamdi and many others in the dairy space who've innovated have made high-quality products affordable. But ultimately, organic is truly preventative health care. And so if affordability, taste, sort of features and benefits like that are all that matter to you, there's a lot of great choices out there. If you want to invest in a true preventative health care system, avoiding getting sick in the first place, putting carbon back in the soil, keeping groundwater clean, you know that on organic farms, we have test wells at the UNH organic farm that demonstrate right next to a conventional farm. This is something Stonyfield funded here, University of New Hampshire. We have demonstrated that on organic farms, there's no nitrogen runoff. Yes, Nothing. you're putting manure, you're applying it to the fields, but there's so much biological matter, there's so much life in the soil that it's absorbing and fixing and growing and expanding and using all those nutrients. As it should. Whereas the conventional farm right next door, and you're in New York, I mean, you know what's going on on the Great Lakes, and as we move to the Midwest, number one point source of pollution in the Great Lakes is nitrogen runoff, Lake Champlain, and conventional dairies do not retain that nitrogen because... They're dependent on annual synthesized fertility, but they're not really building the life in the soil. So again, that is not nothing but good. Listen, I'm all for family farming and I'm all for keeping our lands open and I'm all for quality and I'm all for less expense. But what I'm really all for is getting our heads out of the sand and realize if we're going to leave anything for our children, we got to go back to those basic myths. And that's what organic does every day. So third-party influencers is my answer to your question. But, you know, it also means going out into the community and talking in different ways. I don't know, perhaps we'll get into this during this interview, but you're well familiar with our fields program where we're converting parks and playgrounds all over America to organic. And you could say, well, what's a yogurt company doing that for? Well, the reality is 26 million children play in our parks and schoolyards, not today, but in normal times, 
And 65% of those parks and playgrounds are treated to a cocktail of one, two, or in many cases, three herbicides, most of which are either known or probable carcinogens. And so when you walk your dog on a park or a schoolyard or a field, when your kid dies for a soccer ball and they come in for lunch and they don't wash their hands, our skin is the biggest organ on our body. So our fields program, we've helped over 20 communities across the country convert to organic maintenance with NGO partners, with nonprofits. We have another 15 this year. It'll be 35 communities by the end of the year. We donate $5,000 to each community to help. And you could say, well, why the heck are you doing that? Well, that's our way of saying, look, we're not just committed to organic yogurt. We're committed to organic living. And everybody should be aware that these chemicals are everywhere. And this is our way of not selling anything, just saying, look, right here in your own backyard, you can make a difference. And by the way, the 20 communities who've converted and the hundreds more who many of our NGO partners, you mentioned beyond pesticides earlier, the communities have proven actually that it's less money, less cost to the communities, less taxpayer dollars when those fields and parks are treated organically. So what works on the farms works on fields and grass everywhere. You might be one of the busiest people I know, but you also serve on a bunch of nonprofit boards as well as corporate kind of startups and boards, everything from Sweet Green to Blue Apron to the Forager Project. On the for-profit side, what are the one or two biggest challenges or questions or places of value add that these founders and boards and executive teams are looking to you for advice on? Well, you've already waded into it with your earlier question. It's how to, when your cost of goods is much higher than the conventional counterparts, because again, we're paying farmers the proper price. We're doing the right environmental things. And when our gross margins are at a huge deficiency, how do we then have any money or putting it differently, how do we have any means to reach new consumers? Because the industry is all about growth. And my 35-year legacy of Stonyfield is a legacy of proving first to myself and to others, farmers and suppliers and customers and consumers and employees, that organic really is long-term economics. It really is financially much more sound. But it's also a tremendous learning about guerrilla and non-conventional methods of communicating, of building loyalty. I started to get into this a moment ago. Let me drive right to the hard point. Loyalty is not something that comes to anybody intellectually. It doesn't come between your ears. It comes below your neck. It comes from your heart. I mean, you might include your mouth and your nose because taste is a big part of it. But it's not something you think your way to. You have to feel it. And right now during COVID, to make this a very contemporary comment, what moms and shoppers and consumers want more than anything is to keep their family safe. This is why the circle has exploded, the circle of interest in organic, because people understand, like I said earlier, that, gee, I can take a hand in, I can play a critical role in keeping my family safe by not introducing chemicals in the first place. That can be everything from nonstick pans, the EWG Dirty Dozen, avoid pesticides, to choosing organic. But the point is, I can be active in that. And if I can find a company who's going to be my friend, my ally, who I can then trust, guess what? I'm going to stick with them and I'm going to tell 10 other people about them. And so the little secret that we learned over 35 years 
at Stonyfield and that I am most likely to contribute to these many for-profit boards is this, is that the traditional approach to consumer products is make it as cheap as you possibly can and then use those big margins to buy as much advertising as possible. So with reach and frequency to bang away, just Super Bowl ads, get in front of people. That doesn't build loyalty. It builds awareness, which leads to trial, which leads to purchase, which hopefully leads to repeat purchase. And way down the line, hopefully, if you've satisfied that consumer, they get loyal. The cool thing when you speak to the heart, when you go out and you help parks and fields and playgrounds, people's communities to go organic, when you support and keep family farmers alive and happy and successful and able to do more things, when you have 65 cows, you can do maple syrup, you can do other things, as opposed to a four or five or 200 or 2000 cow farm. When you are helping animals to live twice as long, when you're helping families to stay safe, the cool thing is you jump from awareness all the way to loyalty without all those expensive steps. And so what I try to help companies do is go back to their mission, which frankly is all about the supply chain. It's how it's grown. I mean, Stonyfield, you said it earlier in the introduction. We were one of the first companies to measure our carbon footprint. We vigorously and rigorously have done this for decades. But I can tell you, while transportation, about 7% of our footprint is important, while our manufacturing, about 11% is important, the bulk is in how it's grown, the bulk. And remember, when you're a yogurt company, you're buying fruit, you're buying flavoring, you're not just buying milk. And so when those farmers are sequestering, when they're using less chemicals, which have an enormous carbon footprint, and building soil tilth so that they don't have to plow, use as much horsepower each year, and their animals live longer, and they're using manure, and they're cycling on farm, all of those things, which we're now measuring through this awesome open team program we can talk about later, is it's showing that we want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And that is what successful brands from the very biggest to the little littles are finally really getting. This is how you build successful business. One of the things you mentioned earlier was the importance, and maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but what I took away was you saying how important it was to be kind of self-funding and to be autonomous from the very, very, very early days. Is that also something you feel quite strongly about? I mean, I recognize that there are also, there's some very smart and strategic investors out there, but you bootstrapped and you wanted to control your own destiny. How do you talk to them about that? That all sounds wonderful, but I need to unfortunately pop your bubble. We were far from self-supported. We lost money for nine years. And Samuel and I were in the nonprofit world, so we didn't have salaries. My last salary the year before I started Stonyfield at my nonprofit was $13,500 a year. And Samuel, I don't even know if he earned that. We had no money of our own. And I told you my family had been through some financial struggles, so I didn't have family backing. I ended up having 297 investors, Aaron. I mean, I had a millionaire investor, I mean, a million dollar investor, and I had $5,000 investors. So we were not a model of self-sufficiency. How important is it to me? It's important, but to your point, one of our missions is to, we say our four-part mission is healthy food, healthy people, healthy planet, and healthy business. And what that means is we want to show investors in Wall Street the way. So at my Entrepreneurship Institute this coming Friday, which will be virtual this year, I have 45 investors who will be there with 14 companies pitching them. 
So I'm constantly acting as a yenta here, marrying up people who need with people who got. And by the way, there's an enormous amount of money looking to the organic and natural marketplace now because the stock market isn't exactly warm and fuzzy. So I have no problem with seeking out like-minded investors. Obviously, you said the real point, which is I am all about the entrepreneur and getting the entrepreneur to control their destiny is critical to me. And in many of the companies on whose boards I've sat and my own, Stonyfield and Honest Tea and Annie's and Applegate and Happy Family in late July and others, I have helped the entrepreneur even when they needed to exit. Like I had to get my 297 shareholders and out. You know, they had orthodontics and bills and their kids were going to college. And so I've become also quite knowledgeable, I'm proud to say, finding win-win-win arrangements with investors and with large strategic companies where the entrepreneur can still keep a stake even while getting an exit for their shareholders. I sold Danon 80% of my company and retained 20 in 2001, got all 297 shareholders a very nice return for their loyalty and their heroism and their courage and their insanity in backing me. But even with 20%, the deal I struck with Danone is they left me with 60% voting control, which sounds anti-capitalistic, but I found a common ground. And I've now structured deals like that with others. So there's ways to control your destiny without having to own 100%. So speaking of exits, and I promise to make this the last question, I think I could just move in with you and just talk to you all day, honestly. So you had a succession plan in place, I think it was in 2012, where you're still chairman of the company, but you handed over the reins of CEO to, is it Walt Fries? Is that his name? Yes. My first successor was Walt Fries. Yes. Your first successor was Walt Fries. Just how hard was that? You are a very passionate, very mission-oriented, very driven guy. This is your entire life. And I know that you still remain very active at the company in addition to doing so many other things. But how hard was that moment? Or were you just ready and you knew that this was the time? It was brutal. <laughs> the answer is that I, just to quickly summarize, I sold the company in 2001 to Denon, but retained, as I said, 60% control as long as I remained CEO. And for the next 10 years, we grew the company from about 78 million in sales to about 400 million in sales. I launched organic brands in Europe. Danone's still fastest growing brand globally, I believe, is called Les Devache, the two cows, which was a brand that a friend of mine, another Danone colleague and I helped to found. And we helped Danone find its way to acquiring White Wave. So it was a very heady time of watching and helping organic really permeate the DNA of that company. This current CEO, Emmanuel Faber, says the very first time he ever heard about global climate change and carbon sequestration was from me. And that's because he heard it from me 400 times. So it was wonderful to have that influence. But I came to a point where I recognized two things. One, I believed that I had successfully integrated Samuels and my founding mission into our DNA, that they were inseparable from the company. And I could step back to do other things. I wanted to get into farming. I'm now doing organic farming in New Zealand, as you I think no. And I wanted to diversify, focus more on the politics of organic. As you know, I chaired the national campaign to label GMOs, which was the next fight with Monsanto, by the way, in my career. And I wanted to work on organic policy and help other companies and grow the next generation of entrepreneurs and so on. 
But to be very honest, I was also really tired and 20 some odd years of doing this. So I just needed a break. I went out looking for a successor. Frankly, uh, Walt, who had come from Ben and Jerry's, was not a long-term successor at Stonyfield. He was a bridge to the fellow who we brought back in my former marketing VP, Steve Torrance, who is now today the current CEO and with whom I have an excellent working relationship. But it was important for me to learn how to be more advisorial and less with my hands on the throttle. In hindsight, to really be honest with you, I wish I had taken a sabbatical instead and not been quite so quick to step away. Because in stepping away, of course, I then gave the reins over to Danone because my control was only as long as I was CEO. But we're all compost eventually. You can't hold on to things forever. And no deep regrets, but certainly it was a growth experience, to say the least. Letting your baby go is these businesses are not, especially these mission-driven businesses who you do such a wonderful job of introducing to your listeners, they're never about money. <laughs> Mine never was. And so the mission lives on. I'm telling you, this fields program that I alluded to earlier is one of the great social missions Stonyfield's ever done. You know, there's over a billion pounds of pesticides used annually in the U.S., and we're now demonstrating to parks departments and mayors and even professional baseball stadium managers that they don't need that stuff, just like we've shown farmers. So the mission lives on, and that's very, very satisfying. No, no, I love that. And you are such a humble person and leader. I mean, you truly are the definition of servant leader. You really are. And I appreciate that. And you probably know this, but I'll remind you that you also are an incredible role model for so many people, not just people in business now, but for future leaders as well, because you're able to show that there doesn't have to be a tension between profit and purpose. And I think that's pretty amazing. And like I said, I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours, and I do hope to meet you in person one day. And I thank you on behalf of a loyal customer, just one of millions for everything that you do and for everything that you built. And it's such an incredible story. And I do promise to read your book. I didn't have a chance between booking you and doing this interview, but I will read your book. Well, if I could make a quick plug, there's two books, Aaron. Read my wife's. It's even better. Meg wrote a wonderful book for your listeners called For Better or for Work, A Survival Guide for Entrepreneurs and Their Families. Because entrepreneurship is not just business. It's social, it's nonprofit. It's all about passion. And your families take a hit when you're doing this stuff. So she wrote the book about how to coexist with passionate, crazy missions and uh, not lose your sanity and your relationship at the same time. I'm on it. It'll be my next download on Amazon or on Audible because I seem to be moving more towards those platforms these days. But Aren't we all? Gary, again, it was such a pleasure to have you on. And thanks again for everything that you do and that you've done. Thank you, Aaron. Same to you. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quickkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of entrepreneurs and senior leaders who make it their brand's mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing team, including the voice you never hear, producer extraordinaire Lindsay Hand, and the always on point associate producer Katrina Walkley, who touches every aspect of this podcast. Learn more about our show at brandonpurpose.com. Follow our Instagram at The Bop Podcast. And learn more about our host at aaronquicken.com. Mm-hmm.